Thanksgiving 2010. Most American families were spending their days carving turkeys and gathering with loved ones. But in Washington, D.C., Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was preparing for a firestorm. WikiLeaks had just announced an impending drop of classified U.S. cables. It promised to be the biggest leak in history, exposing the most sensitive inner workings of the U.S. government and its foreign policy. Government officials at the White House and around the world imagined the worst of their secrets being exposed. At an emergency press conference, Clinton and her staff worked tirelessly to diffuse the anxiety, promising that they had everything under control. Still, others took matters into their own hands. Just before the launch, a massive attack from an unknown source hit WikiLeaks. Thousands of computers tried to contact the site at once, collapsing the server. For a moment, it seemed they had succeeded in thwarting the leak. Until a backup Swedish server was enabled. WikiLeaks had been prepared for an assault just like this. The cables would be released, holding a mirror up to the highest levels of U.S. government. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This is Espionage, the podcast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies, their espionage tactics, and what brought their stories to the public eye. I'm Carter Roy. You can find all episodes of Espionage and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Espionage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, so let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is the second episode in our six-week special on whistleblowing where we'll be taking a deep dive into the world of hackers, government secrets, and elusive figures. Last week, we delved into the history of whistleblowing to understand how circumstance, law, and psychology have shaped whistleblowing as we know it today. This week, we're tackling Julian Assange, an activist and expert hacker. Assange founded the website WikiLeaks in early 2006. In 2010, He garnered worldwide attention for several massive information drops that exposed some of the darkest aspects of U.S. foreign relations. His work forced the world to contend with the line between a government's right to have secrets and the public's right to transparency. But before Assange was an international figure of fascination and horror, he was a young boy from Australia with a knack for computers. In the late 1980s, young Julian Assange needed a new challenge. His adventures into computer programming had begun with teaching himself machine code, and by 16 years old, he was hacking under the name Mendax, Latin for liar. By age 19, 
He had already broken into the Australian National University's sophisticated computer system, along with a like-minded trio of computer aficionados that called themselves the International Subversives. Then there was the Lonsdale Telephone Exchange, one of Australia's most powerful computer systems. Assange hacked the system to make thousands of telephones ring all at once. But his next project had to be even bigger, even more of a challenge. And then he found the challenge of a lifetime, hacking into top-secret U.S. military installations. Using programs Assange had written, the international subversives hacked into the U.S. Air Force, the aerospace company Lockheed Martin, the U.S. Naval Undersea Warfare Engineering Station, and likely other defense installations too. These missions, like Assange's others, probably started out as delicious challenges, little more than another opportunity to test and grow hacking skills. But they were destined to be more than that for young Assange. Because what Assange found behind the screens deeply disturbed him. The U.S. military had its own network of hackers. That wasn't right. Not as far as Assange was concerned. After all, what was hacking but a means of tearing down the powerful and their illusions of security? Why would a hacker help the government, the most powerful entity of all? Assange's distrust of authority likely began in his early years. His childhood was nomadic, spent following his hippie mother and her theater company from place to place. Sometimes he attended school, sometimes he didn't. But always he knew he was an outsider. His aversion to authority deepened even further the year after those U.S. military hacks. In 1991, his girlfriend left him and took their baby son, Daniel, with her. The split took a heavy toll on the 20-year-old Assange, particularly after he fought and lost a custody battle. The way he saw it, the system had been rigged against him from the beginning. The courts didn't want men to have custody. That was unfair and injustice. But why be surprised? The system was never meant to be fair, at least not to outsiders like him. Assange started to wonder how he could use his talent for hacking to create more justice and transparency. The Australian government, meanwhile, was starting to get suspicious. On October 29, 1991, Assange heard an ominous pounding on his door. He remained calm. He knew what was waiting for him. He had made too many calls to other hackers bragging about his exploits. Of course, the Australian Federal Police was tracking him. It was only a matter of time until this day came. Assange made his way over to the front door of his apartment, where he was arrested. The threat of being locked up for 10 years on hacking charges, however, seemed to have little impact on Assange, other than perhaps turning him even further away from the government. After miraculously escaping jail time, he went right back to his old behavior, connecting with like-minded computer programmers online. This new group dubbed themselves the Cypherpunks, a club of hackers, mathematicians, nonconformists, and activists who stood for a free and open internet. 
Among their biggest concerns were the countries where possession of technology was restricted by the government, from shortwave receivers to computer printers. In Iraq, even typewriters were required to be registered. The cypherpunks worried about where this would go, the future of tech control, perhaps on a global scale. Governments might even try to restrict access to modems, an essential gateway for connecting the world via the internet. Unacceptable, the cypherpunks and Assange agreed. Oppressive governments had to be stopped. And if no one else would, or could, do something about it, then they'd have to take things into their own hands. The cypherpunks introduced Assange to someone who would become a key figure in his life and in WikiLeaks' formation, John Young. In the late 90s, Young established a website called Cryptome, a platform dedicated to freedom of speech, exposing government impropriety and hosting leaked government documents. Young told Wired magazine, We like to put up original documents so people can make up their own minds. We see it as a librarian service. Assange was fascinated with Cryptome. It seemed like the perfect way to promote free speech and more open government. But it was a bit dry. There was no publicity around its leaks. And often, as a result, no one paid attention to Young's revelations. Perhaps there was a better way to do things. One with a bit more of the drama and pizzazz Assange learned as a young hacker, making a thousand telephones ring all at once. Assange registered the site leaks.org in 1999, but it would be some time before he landed on the right formulation for his new and improved leaking site, namely until the fall of 2005 while living in Melbourne. Assange was scribbling furiously on a whiteboard, explaining his latest idea to his girlfriend. A whistleblowing site where anyone in the world could post documents anonymously through a complex system of impenetrable safeguards. Even he wouldn't know who'd passed the site documents. But unlike Cryptome, his site wouldn't just quietly post the documents on an obscure corner of the internet for the hacker community to argue about. He'd make sure they made it to the people. A key component of the project would be publicizing leaks. And he had the perfect name for it, too. Across the whiteboard, he wrote, WikiLeaks. Assange reached out to Young and asked him to be a silent partner in the venture. Young agreed and helped Assange register WikiLeaks.org in California. Throughout the early part of 2006, Assange worked tirelessly, gathering support among like-minded anarchists, setting up safeguards for anyone who wanted to pass information to the site. Still, for all his planning, by late 2006, Assange had yet to post anything to WikiLeaks because he hadn't received the right documents. He couldn't start small, after all. Not if he wanted WikiLeaks to make a real splash. He needed something really interesting, something newsworthy. So he waited and furiously reviewed every submission he received. Luckily, by the end of the year, one intriguing piece of intel arrived. 
a document that had been shared by an unknown informant in the Chinese government. The document seemed to be written by a Somali rebel leader for the Islamic Courts Union, Sheikh Hassan Dahir Always. It revealed a plan to assassinate Somali government officials. Not a revelation of government corruption, but still a matter of grave importance, of powerful people scheming to kill. Leaking the document prematurely, however, would pose risks. Assange and his team of anarchist techies weren't confident in the accuracy of their translations of the Somalian document. More importantly, because the leaker was anonymous, even to Assange, they couldn't be certain the document was authentic. There was also the issue of where to publish the document. The exact method of how WikiLeaks would run was still taking shape in Assange's mind. He considered sharing the documents with mainstream publications, but in the end, he decided to publish them exclusively on WikiLeaks' site to avoid any possible censorship or editorializing. He was determined that the public alone be the judge and jury. And so, in December 2006, WikiLeaks published its first documents and, in its haste, failed to notify one of its first supporters. John Young was furious. He hadn't been consulted about the Somalian documents at all. He'd been left out of a crucial stage of WikiLeaks development. Is that what silent partner was supposed to mean? And then, right after that first leak, Assange sent out a fundraising email soliciting $5 million to fund the next six months of the site's operations, including its expensive emphasis on publicity for its leaks. That sent Young spiraling. He was convinced he'd either been scammed or was being willfully ignored. So Young retaliated. He published a list of hundreds of WikiLeaks contacts, both employees and supporters, on Cryptome. WikiLeaks had successfully launched, but in the process, Assange alienated his first supporter and damaged all of his current contacts. As the site got bigger, he'd only create more enemies, including the U.S. military. Coming up, the earth-shattering leak that catapulted WikiLeaks into the spotlight and onto the military's radar. Now, back to the story. By 2006, Julian Assange had gone from computer programmer to seasoned hacker to founder of WikiLeaks. Through his new site, Assange hoped to promote freedom of speech and a more open government. But the journey to bringing WikiLeaks mainstream would be winding and fraught. Assange spent the better part of the mid-2000s finding his footing, in an effort to increase reach, Assange decided to partner with a UK newspaper, The Guardian. The partnership would prove mutually beneficial. The Guardian was provided with top-secret intel, and WikiLeaks had access to the newspaper's audience. Together, they published a 2007 expose revealing that former Kenyan president Daniel Arap Moy had siphoned hundreds of millions of dollars of government funds. The article noted that Moy had gone on to acquire multiple lavish properties in London, New York, and South Africa. 
The reporting established what would become a long-term critical relationship between WikiLeaks and The Guardian. But not all of the relationships Assange forged were as amicable. His release of highly classified information earned him a slew of enemies. In February of 2008, Judge Jeffrey White in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California issued an injunction forcing WikiLeaks' domain registrar to shut down the site. The case against WikiLeaks and Assange centered around one particular leak. WikiLeaks had obtained evidence from a Cayman Islands accountant that the Julius Baer Bank and its clients were committing tax evasion. When the evidence was published, the bank's lawyers demanded that Assange remove the documents from the internet. When Assange refused, the bank took him to court. The bank's case looked good. Judge White agreed that publishing the documents violated their client's right to privacy. But Assange was unfazed. It didn't matter if the WikiLeaks domain was shut down, his work would continue. He had already bought more than a half dozen domain names, all leading to the same server. He'd simply switch to one of the others. The authorities had tried to stop him before, and they were welcome to keep trying. He'd keep fighting for transparency and truth, whatever the consequences. What Assange couldn't have anticipated, though, was the passionate defense that would emerge on his behalf. The American Civil Liberties Union, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the Reporters' Committee for Freedom of the Press all fervently insisted that the court's ruling violated the First Amendment right to free speech. These groups gathered supporters from nearly all of the major newspaper publishers in the U.S. and demanded the WikiLeaks domain be reinstated. They insisted that the privacy and commercial interests of Julius Baer Bank were not enough to merit the obstruction of the First Amendment. WikiLeaks may only be a website, not a news publication, but they were essentially doing what journalists do every day, digging up the truth and bringing it to public attention. If this ruling stood, the entire free press would be in jeopardy. Thanks to the pressure from such a monumental coalition, Judge White reversed his decision within two weeks. WikiLeaks and Assange were free to keep informing the public of whatever secret documents they got their hands on. For now. But not all of the attention the case garnered was positive. If Assange hadn't been on the U.S. military's radar before, he definitely was now. The U.S. Army's Counterintelligence Center even issued a special report in March 2008 focused entirely on WikiLeaks which, ironically enough, Assange got a hold of and leaked two years later. According to the report, WikiLeaks posed an information security threat. Assange wasn't a classic whistleblower, a government insider with personal access to top-secret documents, but that, as far as the military was concerned, made him all the more dangerous. Who knows how far he would go, how many secrets he would share, and who his revelations might hurt. Still, if the U.S. government was thinking about him, Assange wasn't concerning himself with the government yet. He was focusing his efforts on other matters of public importance. Assange continued to post damning documents on WikiLeaks throughout 2008. 
There were leaks from the Church of Scientology, which detailed the organization's instructions for dealing with negative press, including blackmail. Next, Assange published a list of Sarah Palin's emails. The vice presidential candidate had been accused of using her private email account for official government matters. A successful hack, mere weeks before the election, proved these accusations. But even then, Assange was just beginning to scratch the surface of the nation's secrets. He didn't dive into the deep end until April 2010. It was a warm, cloudy spring day in Washington, D.C. The air was light with a promise of better weather to come. Members of the media made their way into the National Press Club for a conference hosted by WikiLeaks. They were curious, speculating about what Assange would be revealing this time, but they couldn't have anticipated the magnitude of what awaited them. Assange, armed with laptops and precious cargo, was more jittery than usual. Having just arrived from Iceland, he admitted to feeling nervous. But surprisingly, he had easily passed through customs, an indication that no one suspected the impending barrage. Assange took the floor of the National Press Club, steadying himself as he prepared to address the media. He informed them they were about to see a very rich story. After a moment, the video screens behind him turned on and a quote from George Orwell appeared. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. Then the quote was replaced with text explaining what the audience was about to witness. Assange had acquired footage from 2007 airstrikes in Baghdad strikes that, according to the U.S. government, had only resulted in the deaths of anti-Iraqi forces or insurgents. That's not what the press club saw in Assange's horrifying 17-minute video. They watched a U.S. Army Apache open fire on a group of Iraqi civilians. Among those slaughtered were two Reuters news employees. In the background of the video, U.S. crew members were heard praising their target skills, saying, Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. Nice. Good shooting. The Apache helicopter continued its siege on a van that had stopped to rescue some of the wounded men, injuring two small children. Upon discovering the kids, another crew member can be heard saying, Well, it's their fault bringing their kids to battle. When the lights came up around Assange, members of the U.S. military struggled to hide their embarrassment. The revelation sent the Pentagon into a flurry, making desperate excuses and trying to pin down who'd leaked the video. The appalling content wasn't the only cause for disturbance. It would later be reported that multiple media outlets had access to the video ahead of time and chose not to reveal its contents. Instead, choosing to protect their relationships with military sources. Assange alleged that they likely gave up the video in the interest of more sustained, perhaps better tips down the line. 
Regardless, Assange supporters suggested that the media's allegiance to the military was the reason the collateral murder video received minimal coverage. The media, meanwhile, argued that the video made crucial cuts that obscured the U.S. military's armed opponents on the scene of the battle. After all, Assange's 17-minute video was cut out of 39 minutes of total footage. It was intended to look as sensational as possible, not as accurate or fair. Other elements of the press argued that the video only showed a moment in time, giving little indication of the deep complexities of fighting a war. Assange's work wasn't journalism, it was showmanship. Even CNN, the outlet where Assange expected to receive the most coverage, refused to play the footage out of respect for the relatives. This was a distinct shift from the response to earlier whistleblowing by WikiLeaks, like the Cayman Islands tax fraud case. Assange had succeeded in alienating many members of the press who had, just a few years earlier, championed him. But despite the overwhelming lack of support, Assange would not be swayed. In fact, he seemed to thrive on the embarrassed discomfort that his one-time supporters were throwing his way. It wasn't time to stop. It was time to go bigger, to hit the U.S. government and military harder. They were, after all, the biggest targets when it came to exposing the powerful and corrupt. Coming up, the nearly 260,000 leaked U.S. diplomatic cables that sent the entire world spiraling, and Assange into hiding. Now, back to the story. In April 2010, Julian Assange stunned the Washington Press Club with his collateral murder videos. Despite the lackluster reaction from the mainstream press, the U.S. government was paying attention, and they were hot on Assange's trail. In May 2010, Assange landed back in Melbourne. He was tense with anticipation. Aware that his status as the golden boy whistleblower was slipping, he had no idea what awaited him when he got off that plane. Had the U.S. put out a warrant for his arrest? He'd heard nothing yet, but the silence was equally disconcerting. He made his way through customs cautiously, expecting the worst. At immigration, the officer noted how worn Assange's passport was and mentioned that he needed a new one. Then he disappeared behind a screen. When he came back, he explained that Assange wasn't being flagged. As a world traveler, his passport was bound to be worn. But that was just a bluff. Assange was on a watch list, and he'd been picked up by stop alert. Behind the screen, the immigration officer had handed Assange's passport to the federal police. They quickly photocopied it, collecting a complete record of his travels before returning it without a word. Then, Assange was free to go, for the time being, and the increased scrutiny wouldn't stop him from publishing his next leak. June 30th, 2010 was a hot and humid day in London. Assange sat in the Guardian offices wiping his sweaty brow as he combed through the documents on his laptop. He was accompanied by Nick Davies, a leading investigative reporter for The Guardian, Eric Schmidt from The New York Times, and John Getz, a reporter from Der Spiegel. 
This was a massive leak. And sensing the U.S. government was already on to him, Assange had decided to enlist international help to disseminate this information as quickly and widely as possible. Collaboration with the mainstream media also offered Assange an element of protection. He felt that the Pentagon would think twice about attacking him while he was working with The Guardian and The New York Times. The association, he hoped, would remind them of his rights as a journalist, even in the face of the information he was about to share. Assange had obtained more than 91,000 secret documents related to the war in Afghanistan. And on July 10, 2010, he and his journalistic cohorts were going to publish them. The documents were a major bombshell, and not just because of their sheer volume. They provided never-before-seen insight into the war with Afghanistan and its ramifications. Not unlike Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers had with the Vietnam War almost 40 years earlier. Among the most sensitive documents discussed were the hundreds of unreported civilian deaths that had resulted from the fighting. The documents also described how the United States had lied to the public by covering up evidence that the Taliban had acquired deadly missiles. Assange and his colleagues worked furiously to sift through the documents, yelling out whenever anyone found anything of note. But as they made their way through the intel, the issue of redaction arose. That is, removing the names of the people mentioned in the documents in order to protect them from retaliation. Assange's colleagues pressed him to redact the material. His WikiLeaks team reiterated the request. Even a White House spokesman who had caught wind of the impending leak pleaded with Assange to censor information that could lead to any individuals being harmed. Assange, for his part, seemed relatively unconcerned, pointing out that they had to get these documents out before the U.S. government stopped them. They'd do their best to redact, but WikiLeaks was going to make sure the public knew the truth, even at a price. In the end, 15,000 of the 91,000 documents were withheld because the names couldn't be redacted in time. The rest of the documents seemed to be redacted, but there wasn't time to make sure every name was hidden before Assange's deadline. At 10.03 p.m. on July 10, 2010, WikiLeaks and its mainstream media partners published the Afghan war logs. The news sent shockwaves across the world. Shock at the U.S.'s lies, at the civilian deaths that had been suppressed, and at the sheer size of this information leak. International headlines wasted no time tapping into the drama. Programs like Larry King Live and Dateline covered the leak, interviewing Assange and asking if he believed that war crimes had been committed. But while Assange was pleased to see the Afghan logs dominating the media, trouble was afoot. The 77,000 papers published still contained the names of people of interest, and Assange quickly came under fire for putting their lives at risk. Amnesty International and Reporters Without Borders, once WikiLeaks supporters, wrote to Assange condemning the careless journalism. From their viewpoint, he'd only gotten sloppier since the collateral murder video. They wrote that publishing the report represented a real problem of methodology and therefore credibility. 
This was no Washington insider judiciously distributing a few documents he believed should be made public. This was a wholesale assault on the right of the government to have secrets. At the same time, for much of the public, the incident clarified why those secrets were sometimes justified. Frivolously publicizing the names and locations of vulnerable targets could lead to the death of Americans and their allies. The U.S. government and the FBI, meanwhile, were reeling. The New York Times reported that Justice Department lawyers were exploring whether WikiLeaks could be charged with inducing or conspiring in violation of the Espionage Act. Complicating matters were Assange's journalistic rights, which had been established in the Cayman Islands case and which he hoped would protect him even now. After all, he wasn't the individual doing the leaking. He hadn't hacked into government files himself. He was simply reporting on documents that came his way. At least, so said his supporters. But their numbers were dwindling. Others claimed he was nothing more than a spy, passing intel to the United States' enemies. Whether he did it through a public forum or not didn't matter. It would be a bitter debate. But it was one the U.S. government was determined to win, journalistic protections or no. Coincidentally, however, the U.S. government's crusade against Assange wasn't his only legal concern in 2010. Only a few months later, Assange would be wanted in Sweden on charges of rape and sexual assault. The story began to spiral, taking hold of Swedish tabloids while the Afghan war logs were still circulating through the American press. Assange was more famous than he'd ever been, not as a champion of transparency this time, but as a criminal. Though the rape charges were eventually thrown out, prosecutors continued to pursue Assange on lesser sex crimes. In response, he fled to the UK, but Assange wasn't going to give in to the law without fighting back. While on the run from both Swedish and US officials, Assange continued posting leaked documents. There were the so-called Iraqi war logs, hundreds of thousands of classified documents about the war in the Middle East. Then he hit even harder. On November 28, 2010, WikiLeaks, in conjunction with its mainstream media partners, published the first of almost 260,000 U.S. diplomatic cables. They exposed calls by the Saudi king for the U.S. to attack Iran, as well as Hillary Clinton's order for the U.S. State Department to spy on the U.N.'s leadership. Assange intended for a slow release of documents. He hoped to keep the world guessing about the contents of the remaining cables, drawing out the drama of the release. But on December 3rd, The Guardian foiled his plan. In a horrible blunder, the newspaper published identifying information on all of the remaining cables. According to Assange, they released all the metadata, the date of every cable, the subject of every cable, which embassy it was from, where it was to, subject, date, time. If it hadn't already, the U.S. government now had what it needed to exact revenge. Assange's leaks were putting vulnerable individuals at risk, threatening foreign relations and exposing national secrets. 
As Hillary Clinton put it, this disclosure is not just an attack on America, it is an attack on the international community. There is nothing laudable about endangering innocent people, and there is nothing brave about sabotaging peaceful relations between nations. Assange had secured his place on the list of United States enemies. WikiLeaks' already diminished support seemed to vanish. Amazon, which had been hosting WikiLeaks during the Cablegate release, disconnected their services. PayPal suspended the account WikiLeaks used to receive donations. MasterCard and Visa stopped payments to WikiLeaks as well. The world had turned on Assange, and his pursuers were closing in. Sweden requested Interpol issue a red alert for Assange's arrest. In his pursuit of transparency, he had set the world ablaze. But he hadn't done it alone. Still troubling the U.S. government was where exactly Assange had obtained his leaked documents. The cables. The Iraq and Afghan war logs. Even that footage of the 2007 Baghdad airstrikes. It had all come from the inside. That much was clear. It wouldn't take them long to close in on that insider. Intelligence officer and private first class, Chelsea Manning. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back next week with part three of our whistleblower special on Chelsea Manning. For more information on Julian Assange, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Most Dangerous Man in the World by Andrew Fowler extremely helpful. You can find more episodes of Espionage, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week to continue our deep dive into the world of whistleblowing. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Espionage was written by Natalie McKeeran, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. 